Galatians chapter number 5, verse number 19. Let's look at it together. It's on the screen for you. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Here's what he said. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in the times of past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. For if we live in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. Lord, one more time tonight, I ask that you would bless the reading of your word and that you would help us to, to, Lord, not only to read about this, but Lord, let the fruits of your Spirit begin to grow in our lives in a greater way. God, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we finished up our teaching on the nine supernatural manifestations of the Spirit, the power gifts, the vocal gifts, and the revelation gifts. And we talked about how those gifts were supernatural, that God had imparted those as he wills to the church for the building up of the body of Christ and also into uh, evangelism and his other purposes that he has. And so uh, there's the gifts of the Spirit. Tonight, though, I want to talk to you about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit in the Scripture is symbolized by many different things. The Holy Spirit uh, is referred to in Acts chapter 2, is symbolized as a mighty rushing wind. Um, Then in that very same passage, the Holy Spirit is referred to as cloven tongues, as a fire. John said he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit is referenced as water. Uh, John chapter 7 says, On that day out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. Uh, Oil, he'll give us the oil of joy uh, for a spirit of heaviness. So the the Holy Spirit symbolizes a lot of things. And one of those things that he's symbolized as is a dove. Now, if you take the dove, right? Now, this is just introductory tonight, but if you take the dove and you take that bird, okay, God designed that bird to fly, amen? Now, there's some birds that peck around on the ground, but God designed a dove to fly. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a dove fly with one wing? He's not getting up off the ground. It takes how many? Two. Really, it takes two wings and some tail feathers for a dove to fly correctly. Now, if you take that left wing, now we're in a very politically hot driven culture. We're under, we understand the terminology, don't we? Left wing, right wing. Well, let me give it to you in a different scenario rather than politics. A dove has a left wing and it has a right wing. Well, in that, the making of that dove, right, there are, listen to me, this is important. There are more than nine feathers, but there are nine major feathers on the left wing, and there are nine major feathers 
on the right wing. So the left and the right wing have a total of 18 major feathers. There's some other secondary feathers, but there are nine major feathers on the dove. Go check me out. So um, it's interesting because there are nine fruits of the Spirit and there are nine gifts of the Spirit. And the problem is when you have all of the fruit and you don't have any power, hello, you're not complete. But at the same time, when you have all the gifts, Paul said if you speak in tongues but you don't have love, 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to look at that tonight. He said then you're equally as ineffective. So we need the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit working together in our lives. So the gifts of the Spirit are really for to minister um, to other people. But the fruit of the Spirit, although it is to minister to other people, it also ministers through us and develops us. Because the Bible says that he is the vine and we are the what? Branches. All right, that's correct. That's John chapter 15. Now, uh, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you're connected to me, the connotation there is you will bear much fruit. Now, when we are connected to Christ, the fruit of the Spirit begins to develop and grow in our lives. And that happens, um, should begin to happen rather, immediately after we give our lives to Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that we're, we're 100% sanctified in the sense of we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we don't have things we need to work on. But the fruit of the Spirit should begin the process of developing in our lives when we come to Christ because the Holy Spirit, as we learned a few weeks ago, he is instrumental in the process of regenerating us. Our spirit man is what really becomes the born again part of us. Then we renew our mind and we crucify our flesh, but our spirit is, is renewed. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So, when we get saved, we start this process of beginning to look more like Jesus. Now, let me share something with you. That process will last until the day you get to heaven. I know there's some people who feel like they've already made it. They don't feel like they ever need to repent or to say they're sorry or anything because they're just like, we're here and they're way up here. But the truth is, even the Apostle Paul was so open and candid to struggle with the fact that, that Christ was still being formed in him. Because as long as we're on this earth, we're going to continue to be growing and growing and growing. So God wants to give us spiritual fruit. Everybody say fruit. Now, here's the thing. People say, well, you're not supposed to judge. No, you, you're not supposed to judge a person's, uh, uh, you know, motive per se, but we can judge fruit. You know, if you have a, a persimmon uh, bush out in your yard or whatever, and you say, hey, that's an apple tree, how of you know I can look at you and say, that ain't no apple tree? Well, you can't judge. Well, I mean, I'm just making an observation, right? Now, cats, meow, help me somebody. Dogs, what? Cows, do what? All right. So, and sinners, what? All right, yeah. And Christians are supposed to live how? Holy. 
Ha, ha, ha. Amazing. We got it right. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Amen. But it does mean we should be growing. So, you know, uh, we're going to begin this journey. Now, I'm, I don't have a green thumb. I have rocks in my flower bed for a reason. We have managed to keep a plant alive that we received from my mother-in-law, precious mother-in-law's funeral several years ago, and somehow it's still alive. But uh, by the grace of God, I, I don't, I don't, I can't even keep grass alive real good. It just, you know, but I do know something about growth. Uh, even here at the church and other places, um, there's something called fertilizer. And fertilizer and heat Sunlight, exposure makes things grow. And I want you to know something. Christians don't grow, hello, in calm, gentle environments. We grow in the heat. Our character is formed in difficult situations. Our, our, our lives are formed our character in the secret place of our soul. It, they are formed whenever we're going through the fiery trials of life. But aside from that, they grow when they're fertilized. Now, listen, I don't want to be crude tonight, but we all know what fertilizer is, right? It's mess. And sometimes it's being messed on. And yeah, we don't like it in the process. We get mad about the person who messed on us. We get upset about it. We think it stinks. It's nasty. There's flies. There's maggots. There's all types of it's nasty stuff. But there's something about that fertilizer that helps us grow. I want you to know something tonight. The life of a Christian is not necessarily easy in the sense the world says, you know, you'll never have any problems. You never have any difficulties. Your marriage will never struggle. You'll never, you'll never have to need more money or anything like that. No, not, 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 not so much in those areas. But I'm telling you, as we are living in this world, as Christians, we are literally living a countercultural life. You know, salmon, when they go to lay their eggs, when they spawn to go to lay their eggs, they swim upstream against the current. And you know, Christians, we, we go against the current, or at least we should, right? At least we should. We shouldn't go with the world, but we should go against the current of the world. And so those situations in our lives actually help us to develop the fruit that God's talking to us about in the book of Galatians. Now, Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, and he's dealing with them about some pretty tough stuff, okay? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. I want you to see this. Paul makes a distinction. He talks about the works of the flesh and the works of darkness, or I'm sorry, the works of light, the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. Here's what he said. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, okay, adultery. We know what that is. Adultery. Then there's fornication, okay? Adultery, sex outside of marriage, fornication, just sexual relations, period, don't, marriage, whatever, just it's sinful. Uncleanness, lewdness. Then look, idolatry. 
Then he goes to what? Sorcery, witchcraft. Isn't sorcery witchcraft? How many people dressed their kids up like little witches yesterday? Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. Then he, what does he say? Uh, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, as I told you in times past, those who, this is interesting right here, so don't miss the way Paul phrases this, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, I want to make a clarification tonight. There is a difference between missing the mark and sinning and repenting. There's a difference between that because everybody does that, okay? None perfect, no, not one. There's a difference between messing up, whether it be thought, word, or deed, saying, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. There's a difference between that and practicing sin, Okay? See, practicing sin is what we did before we knew Christ. It was that old lifestyle of unbridled, just, you know, give in to our carnality, do whatever we want to do. And, and Paul's sitting here trying to tell us those who practice those things are not regenerated. Why? They don't have the fruit of the Spirit in their life. They're the same old carnal person. Because listen, a Christian's not going to want to live in drunkenness. A Christian's not going to want to live in bursts of anger and, and sorcery and revelry and all of those things. Paul said those are evidently the works of the flesh. And if you practice those things, live them in a lifestyle where you say, you know what? God's whatever and he doesn't care. God's grace, Sarah, Sarah. He said, no, no, no. He said, don't make any mistake about it. Those who practice those types of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty bold statement. But then look at this contrast where Paul draws a line, and here's what he says. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there such is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And he says, if we live in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. So, he goes on listing these attributes of what it looks like to be connected to the vine of Christ. Tonight, I want to just take a few moments, and I'm going to get through as much as I can. If I can't get through it all, we'll come back next week. Obviously, we'll pick this back up. But... I want to look directly at um, one of our verses here, and I want to look at uh, verse number 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Everybody say love. The first fruit of the Spirit tonight that I want to talk to you about is love. As a believer, when the Lord starts working in your heart, love will begin to develop. Love will begin to develop in your life. Now, I want to talk to you about this kind of love. And they can put that on the screen. That first point there is love. The, the, the thing we think about love in Western culture, we typically associate it with Valentine's Day, right? The gushy, gooey feeling of, you know, hearts and roses. And that's definitely a type of love. That the thing that we have to realize about the complexity of foreign language is uh, in the 
Koine Greek and even in Hebrew, there are different words that we translate the same word in English, right? It's, it's the same thing uh, in English. We have words like that. Uh, just like the word hot can mean two different things. The word cool can mean two different things. Well, there's several different types of love in the Bible. There's the uh, phileos love. That's brotherly love. My brother Aaron over here, even though he wore the wrong color shirt tonight, uh, I can tell him I love him, right? But that's not the same type of love that I say when I tell Miss Blonnie, I love you, right? Because that's phileo love. That's brotherly love. I love you, man. I love everybody. But my love for y'all is not the same for her. That's, that's a different type of love. That's a euros love. That's an intimate love, a romantic love. Then there's the agape love. And that's what this word is right here. In Galatians chapter 5, when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's agape love. That's the God kind of love. That love right here does not come naturally. Our love comes with conditions. Our love comes with contracts. And God forbid if we walk by our emotions, we'll love you today and hate you tomorrow. Okay? But that's not the God type of love. Uh, the, when the Bible says, when God so loved the world, John chapter 3, verse 16, he gave his only begotten son. The word love there is the same word here. It's agape. It's an unconditional kind of love. It's a love that chooses to see past wrong. It's a love that chooses not to take record. It's a love that covers the multitude of sin. It's an a interesting type of love here. But it does not come natural, right? So, when the Holy Spirit is living in our hearts through salvation, God begins to manifest love in us. And it begins to grow. And people say, don't pray for patience because you'll have an opportunity to learn patience, right? Because they always say, it's the old saying. I want to tell you the same thing is true for love. God will give you an opportunity to learn how to love. I tell you, I talk to parents all the time who have children, who have gone astray, gone away, they went down the wrong path, they've denied their teachings, they've, they've maybe made a, a mess of the family name, whatever. And, and you know, these families, they, they don't agree with what their child did, right? They don't stamp and condone their actions, but they still love them. They still love them. Why? Because that's, that's an agape kind of love. It's, it's a love of a parent to a child. It's, it's a love that, that says, I know that you're a knothead, and I know that I want to slap you till next Tuesday. I know that you need some deliverance and counseling, but I still love you. You know, the Bible says in the Gospel of John, by this, they will the, the world will know that they are my disciples by how they love one another. Not how big their church is, not how flowery their tongue is, not how accurate their prophetic word is, not how much money they give to the poor. The scripture says, by this they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Wow, amen. Love is something that has to develop in us. You know, Jesus began to talk about in the Gospels this type of love where I believe it was over in, uh, I think it was the Gospel of Mark. Forgive me for not having the reference in front of me, but Jesus makes this statement 
talking about forgiveness and love and he's dealing with relational things. Here's what he says. He says, how can you say you love God whom you can't see, but yet you don't love your brother whom you can see? Right? So God's love is manifest in our hearts so that we can love the people around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14 deal a lot with love. I don't want you to turn over here tonight, but this is important for us to you to recognize. And uh, many of you will, will know this. I'm going to turn over here just for the sake of looking at some things. I want to look at some of the characteristics of this type of love. Now, you may have gotten this and it been on a Hallmark card, but that's cool. Um, this love is not talking about romance. This love is talking about the kind of love that God sheds abroad in our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look at it. We'll start at verse 1. We won't read all of it. We'll read, we'll read down to probably verse 10. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, that I could remove mountains. And he said, but if I have not love, I am nothing. And though, listen, he leaves no stone unturned here. He says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body, listen, though I give my body to be burned as a martyr, as an offering. Here's what Paul is saying. And I have not love. It profits me nothing. But then look at what he goes on to say about love. Love suffers long. It doesn't cut people off like that. Love suffers long. It's kind. Love doesn't envy. What does envy mean? Envy is, is kind of cousin to the word covet. It's, it's to be kind of jealous, if you will, of people. If you, if you love somebody, you're not jealous of their advancement. You're not jealous of their position. If I love you, hello, I should be happy about where you are in life. When you get a new house, I should celebrate. When you get a new car, I should celebrate. When you get married, I should celebrate. Even though I've been looking for a spouse for 10 years, hello, and I've been asking God to send me one. I'm using an illustration here. I should be happy. Love is not envious. Love doesn't parade itself. You know what that means? It doesn't strut around like a peacock. It's not proud. It's not proud. Look at me. Look at what I did. Look at where I went. Look at who I talked to. Look at what I gave. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. Whoo, here's another one. Love does not behave rudely. How do you speak to people? Our tone of voice. Our facial Features sometimes. You know, there is a such thing called body language. Right? You can say a whole lot and say a whole lot of nothing. You don't believe me? Make your mama mad. Make your daddy mad. Anybody's daddy ever could give them a look? Okay? Didn't have to say a word. Because the way you look communicates. Okay? So guess what? Love does not behave rudely, so it doesn't hurt to smile. Amen. Uh, he doesn't seek its own, but it's not provoked. It does no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, 
but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. And here's what Paul said. If there are prophecies, they'll fail. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But that which is perfect has come, um, then that which is in part will be done away with. But the emphasis of Paul's writing here is that love is the principal thing. It is the hinge which all Christianity swings upon is love. The agape kind of love. If you love people, you'll share the gospel with them. If you love people the way God loves, you will help them when they're hurting. If you love people, you'll go the extra mile for people whenever they're on difficult times. So love is vitally important. So that first fruit is love. Does anybody in this room tonight say, God, baptize me in your love? Just baptize me in your love tonight. Okay, here's the second one. He says, not only love, number two, let's look at the second fruit I want to cover tonight. We're going to look at joy. Joy. Now, I want to tell you, joy is often misunderstood. Joy is not synonymous with happiness. In fact, I would venture to say this, joy, right, joy, happiness rather, happiness can be an emotion, but joy is a position of the heart. Happiness is tied to circumstances. Happiness is tied to people. Happiness is tied to possessions and things, but joy is not the same thing. Joy is based on knowing who God is, who Jesus is, and his plan and purpose for our life. Listen, I'm telling you, the difference between happiness and joy is happiness is circumstantial, but joy, a Christian can have joy in any situation in life as long as they know that they have Jesus. Now, let me give you an example. In Acts, the 16th chapter, the apostle Paul had become so vexed at this little girl, I mentioned it last week, possessed with the spirit of divination. She was, you know, fussing at them and she's basically outing them. They were just trying to be peaceful at what they were doing. And uh, these are the men of the most high God who's showing us the way of salvation. And the Bible says that they ended up getting arrested and they were jailed. They were placed in an inner prison. There were shackles on their hands and on their feet. They were placed in this place. And the Bible says in Acts 16, that at midnight, Paul and Silas begin to pray and sing praise to God in the midnight hour. Now, I don't know about you, but for most of us, aside from a supernatural revelation of Jesus and, and having a tight relationship with him, I don't know that we would have been singing the right song in the midnight hour. Some of us might have been singing, why me, Lord, why me? Lord, why am I down here in this dungeon? The preacher told me if I sent, sent an offering, everything would be great. Why am I down here? I've, I've served you 20 years. I've went to church. I've never missed a service, Lord. Why? Some of us would be singing the old hee-haw song, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Grandpa Jones would bust out his, hello, 
My grandma used to make me watch that show when I was little. Some of us would be singing that. But no, the Bible says they began to sing praise and they prayed in the midnight hour. And guess what? It wasn't no sad song. The Bible says all of the prisoners heard them. And guess what? An earthquake came. Why? Because God inhabits the praise of his people. And you may feel like you're isolated. You may feel like you're in a dungeon. You may feel like you're in the darkest hour of your life. But guess what? If you decide to praise, you're never alone. And you're never alone anyway. But when you begin to praise, his presence will fill that room. And guess what? Paul and Silas could have joy, happiness that comes from a true place of joy. Wonder what they sang. Maybe they sang a mighty fortress is our God. Maybe they sang there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. I don't know what they sang. Whatever they sang was a song of victory. And God visited them in that dark place. Joy is not tied to our circumstances. Our joy is tied to who we know. Here's another one. Jesus exhibited this. Imagine our Messiah, sweaty, hot, the cross strapped to him. He's carrying it up Golgotha's hill. He's marching towards his assignment. We forget that they beat him, they spat on him, they cursed him, they mocked him. He felt every single laceration, every hair pull, he felt it. The Bible says he was beaten beyond recognition. You could see his insides, cat of nine tails with the shrapnel on the ends that would just literally go in and pull out pieces of flesh. It was so horrible. You think he might have thought about quitting a time or two? Ah, maybe. But you know what kept him going? Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was the joy set before him. You know what the joy was? Jesus, when he was dealing with the difficulty of the cross, prophetically looked into the future, just like Isaiah the prophet and the other people did, and he saw us. He saw his prize. He saw the redemption of humanity. And it gave him joy. So with joy, he endured the cross. That is straight from the words of Scripture. With the joy set before him, he endured. Joy. There's an acronym that goes along with joy. It helps us keep joy in our life. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. All about perspective and priority. Love, joy. I sure wish the Holy Spirit would give some of y'all some joy. I'm not being rude when I say that, but you've been through difficulty. You've been through hardship. You've been through pain. You've had loss after loss. Some days it feels like when I wake up, what's going to happen today? You feel like, I know we, it's, it's kind of futile to compare ourselves to Job because none of us in this room have gone through the seriousness or even the severity of what he's gone through. But, you know, when you're going through your own problems, you kinda, it kind of feels different. Amen. And you start thinking, Lord, what's next? This and then that and then the other. And you plug one hole and another leak springs over here. And you're thinking, what? But, you know, I'm praying God would give us some joy. 
You know how we learn to have joy? In the middle of our struggles. That's how we get joy. Here's the third one tonight. I want to leave you with this one. It's peace. Love, joy, peace. Peace is a little bit related to joy in the same sense is that God's peace is not tied to circumstances. The Bible says he gives us a peace that surpasses all natural understanding. You see, the doctor walks into the room and says, you have six months to live. The normal person that doesn't know God Fear grips their heart. Their heart begins to palpitate. They hear that dreaded word. They begin to, you know, feel a certain kind of way. And it's just amazing the power of words, isn't it? You know, the Bible teaches us about the power of words. When you believe something and you receive it, it affects you. And immediately what happens? Steals your peace. But put a Christian in that situation. And I didn't say it's going to be easy. I didn't even say you wouldn't have to battle. But I will say that if you have the Lord in your life and your, his word is an anchor to your soul and you're really walking with Jesus, he can give you peace in the middle of that. You know why? Because the doctor may have a word, but it's not the final word. And the last we checked, they practiced medicine. Jesus perfected it on a cross 2,000 years ago. So you can have peace. Why? Because even if your x-ray is correct, doctor, even if the CAT scan really does show what you says it shows, God is able. We can have peace in the middle of it. Mark chapter 4, we see this perfectly. We see the disciples were passing over with Christ to the region of the Gadarenes and Jesus is asleep in the boat. Not troubled, not fretful. When all of a sudden, a storm arises. We know the story. We're very familiar with it. But for those of you who aren't, the Bible says that a great storm, one translation says it's a Eurachlodon. It's a mighty, fierce storm that just brewed almost out of nowhere. This wasn't a normal storm. This was a demonic storm. How do I know that? Because Jesus ended up speaking to this storm and told this storm to be still. And he rebuked the storm and the storm was calm. And, and so Jesus uh, turns to these disciples and he says, why are you so fearful? Why is it that you have no faith? Now, we read that in a cute tone of voice, but it really wasn't a cute tone of voice. It really was a disciple gently rebuking his students because he's like, if I ain't messed up about it, why are you messed up about it? I, I gave you authority. You could have just spoke to it and let me sleep. But okay, I'll get up and do it. Peace and be still. And guess what happened? That storm subsided. They safely got to the other side and got to where they were going. We also see this in Acts chapter 27. Pastor Seth alluded to this 
a little bit on Sunday when Paul was going from, you know, place to place and he was ultimately working himself to Rome where he would ultimately end up. Uh, what we find is that they were, um, they were shipwrecked and, and God gives him supernatural peace. In Acts chapter 27, verse 25, he says, all is well. The Lord told me everything is going to be all right. You can have peace. Do you know all you need is a word from the Lord? And I give you peace. Here's the last one. The last reference I want to give you is this. I referenced it also last Wednesday, but Peter, whenever Christ bid him to come and walk on the water when Jesus was on the other side and he, after he had appeared to them, the Bible says the winds and the waves were boisterous. The winds and the waves were boisterous. And Peter was you know, at the stern of that boat, the other disciples were in the back and Jesus says, come. Just one word is all that's in the original language. Come. That's all. It's not a paragraph. There's not a whole chapter. One word. Come. So Peter stepped out on one word. The Bible never records, though, that Jesus stopped the storm. In fact, it implicitly tells us that that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and began to look at the storm and the winds and the waves, and he got distracted. And that's when he began to sink. See, what I'm trying to tell you is, in one situation, Jesus spoke to the storm, and the storm dissipated. But in another situation, God didn't steal the storm, he stilled his disciple. Did you hear me? See, God doesn't always fix every situation like we think it ought to be fixed. But the Bible says he always does make a way of escape in the midst of adversity. But guess what he does? He gives us peace in the middle of it. You know why we need peace? Because when we're full of anxiety and fear and worry and trouble, we tend to make irrational decisions, irreversible decisions, and we tend to react rather than act. God wants us to have peace. Anybody need any peace? You know how you get it? You get it by letting the Lord work with you through situations. I told you at the beginning of this, all these things are not just 100% automatic in our lives when we get saved. You got to have some heat and you got to have some manure. But hallelujah, if we'll, if we'll begin to rejoice, why, why do you think the Bible says in the book of James, close your Bible because I will keep preaching. Why do you think the book of James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into diverse trials and temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works what? Patience. Maybe some of the stuff that we blame the devil on so often really isn't the devil. What if it's God permissively allowing some things in our life so we can be developed? 
because, and I'm not talking about sickness and things like that. God, God he, he doesn't make his children sick. We would call DHS if we spoon-fed our child a cold. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about situations in life that we're like, Lord, we're an American Christian and we really don't want to hurt. Please get us out of this situation. You know, when our brothers and sisters in Pakistan are, are getting the brakes beat off of them every day for serving Jesus, right? And we're just like, oh, Lord, help us. No, sometimes God allows us to go through things to develop our character and thank God for it because every circumstance that we've ever gone through in our life, take any of them away, we would not be who we are today. We'd be a totally different person, different personality, different things because God uses all things. He works all things together for his good.